0: you're
1: listening to the nbs alien podcast with your host heather woodward an award-winning psychic supernatural author and lover of all things true crime on this show we're going to deep dive into topics that don't usually see the light of day the spooky the weird the macabre the paranormal and of course aliens sit back grab a cup of tea and let's get on with the show So let's start out with you just telling me who you are, what you do, how you got involved in this, all that stuff.
2: I am Dan Wright. I am a retired bureaucrat for the state of Michigan. I was a technical writer and researcher. But how I got involved in the UFO subject takes me back to my college days. And it wasn't my sighting. It was my father's. He was a truck driver. He drove 18-wheeler but hauling bread and to various terminals up the Lake Michigan coastline from Grand Rapids. He was coming back after dropping his load one night along US 131. He had done this hundreds of times. He knew every yard light, every tractor path along. He noticed to his left to the east as he was traveling south, there was some sort of odd ball of light or something and he thought the moon No, he looked out his rider window and there was the full moon over the lake he rolled down the window to make sure he wasn't seeing a reflection no it wasn't that so he was just confused at first and he wondered how big this thing was and how far away it was every person who's ever seen a UFO knows this problem how big it was depends on how far away it was, You know, its relative size. So as he kept going mile after mile, this ball, which was pulsating from a bright amber-orange, dimming down to the point where there was only a ring of light around the outside of it, and, and the entire middle portion was dark, he began... Counting the seconds and saw that it was about seven seconds to get bright and seven seconds to dim down. But it kept right along parallel to him, and he realized after a while, holy moly, this thing is pacing my truck. After 15 miles, he finally pulled off onto the shoulder, and he's just staring intently at it when he got the fright of his life. A motorist who'd been following that same light, pulled up behind his truck and banged on the rider door and sent my dad's head into the roof. But they stood outside the truck and just watched it for a few minutes. My dad tells him, I happen to know there's a tractor path up here about 50 yards. We could get into your car and I've got a gun in the truck. We could get real close to this thing. Well, the other guy said he was just about as close as he wanted to be. And he just barely got those words out of his mouth when, in an instant, it came from what my dad had figured was about a quarter mile away to within 100 yards, still hovering just over the field. Wow. Well, that was it. The other guy, he threw gravel with his car tearing out of there. My dad stayed for a few more minutes, but by himself. He just didn't have quite enough courage to walk in that field and press the issue. He finally got back in the truck, started it up. He went over a long hill, and as he got to the top of it, he looked back in his rearview mirror, and this had stayed over that field. So he got to his final uh, dock where a dock worker said, You look like you've seen a ghost. Well, that morning, instead of eating breakfast and going to bed as he always did, He ate breakfast and then went to a bookstore and bought every UFO-related book on their shelves. Over the next decade, he kept buying UFO books, which weren't very good at the time. They were pulp. But he passed those on to me, and I read through them all. And finally, by 78, I decided to become involved myself. That September of 78, I had two close encounters within... 19 days of each other. The first was in the company of a workmate. She was driving, I was riding. We were going from Lansing, which is in the middle of the state, to Kalamazoo on the southwest side along I-94. And as we were traveling west on 94, I saw something just beyond the eastbound lanes and, and a line of trees that I knew couldn't be an airplane. So I told her in no uncertain terms to stop the car, which she did. As we were getting out, I'll always think that it truly reacted to our stopping. It made a very tight left-hand turn and came directly over us, just a couple of hundred feet away. This is what people later on in the early 80s would call a boomerang. Others have called it a, a triangle, and I understand why both are given because it's like an isosceles triangle but the rear side is kind of indented. That went directly overhead. It was all black. There was no window, no door, no insignia, nothing on the outside of this thing. It went over us and continuing to descend. By the way, as it went over us, it's doing like maybe 20 miles an hour, our best jet has a stall speed of just over 100 miles an hour. So it weren't one of ours. And it made an extraordinarily tight circle over this cornfield, virtually a ballerina's pirouette, and then went at jogging speed over that, just over the field, 15 feet maybe off the ground, and stopped and hovered then over a small group of trees. The driver said, run, Dan, run after it. And I thought, great idea, forgetting that every interstate has a metal fence. I bounded off that like a trampoline, landed on my butt, and thought, how stupid must they think I am? (laughs) (laughs) Beam us up, Daddy, there's no intelligent life down here. But as I got back off my butt and stood up, I got a queasy feeling like, no, I'm not supposed to walk up to this thing. I'm supposed to just stand here and take mental notes. There was another car that had stopped on a, on a side road. I saw the taillights come in. So I raced down the corn row and found this guy and his son who were also looking at it. And we were trading notes when it just gradually jogging speed and then picked up speed finally was lost on the horizon. Nineteen days later, I was at home in a small town west of Lansing, and I got three phone calls through the police. I was hooked up with the police and airports and stuff. To get, They don't want these calls, and I did, so it was a good marriage. I got three calls in about ten minutes of people seeing an odd red light that was hovering and moving over a river that runs through the city of Lansing. So I went out in my backyard my wife came out with me and we were watching it we were watching just stars popping up it was just dust turning to darkness when what i thought were two stars suddenly started moving in opposite directions and one came toward us this wife i had who was terribly taken aback by everything that i was doing in this area she went back in to do the dishes (laughs) as it came toward our town, it resolved into four lights. As it came closer, I could see this isn't one, it's really four lights in a square. On opposite corners were two red and two green. Well, just as every airplane has to have a red light on the left wingtip and a green light on the right, no airplane can have two green lights. As it went past my little town and kept going west, I opened the back door and shouted in, I've got to drive. So I jumped in my Mustang and charged out on our county road. And as I'm, I'm going faster and faster, I'm up to over 80 and thinking, what if a cop pulls you over? It's all right, officer. I'm chasing a UFO. Yes, sir. Well, we'd like you to breathe into this tube, if you would. As we got closer to that little village, these lights that I'm straining, what are these lights connected to? Is this a saucer-shaped thing? And I finally decided they're not connected to anything. It's simply four, like, volleyball-sized lights that are blinking and traveling in this 10-foot-to-a-side square. Well, they careened across the road right over this little village, and as it did, the whole sky lit up as if it had taken a flash photo of that village which I thought well that's odd. <laughs> the lights kept going northwest and I knew the road kept going west so I had to get off it and I took gravel road after gravel road trying to make my way in that general direction. I lost track of the lights, I'm flying down these gravel roads hoping I don't meet another car. and starting to convince myself to give up the ghost. When I was in the midst of that, I came into a clearing and there they were, hovering 10-15 feet off the ground over this fallow field, about 50 or 60 yards from me. Well, I thought, okay, when it was over that boomerang or whatever was over the freeway, you didn't get over to it. Now, You just got to walk up and see what happens. It's been an interesting life, eh? I started out of my car. I got between the body and the door of the car, and my mind, just with a click of a finger, went blank. I don't know how long I stood there. It may have been a minute. It may have been an hour. When I came back into full consciousness, these lights were gone. They weren't right in front of me anymore, and I thought, what the hey? And I turned around and there they were behind my car in the adjacent field. I don't know how they got from point A to point B, but the thought of walking over to them never occurred again. I just thought to get back in my car and flash my headlights at it in some kind of Morse code, which I didn't know. And after a few minutes of that, I got a queasy feeling again that I was intruding on something. Whoever was operating these lights had an agenda, and I was intruding on it. I started my car, and I drove home. When I got there, and frankly, I didn't even look at a clock, so I don't know how long I was gone. My wife was in bed. I sat on my Lazy Boy and started rocking with this thought over and over in my mind. These guys don't need weapons. They just bend your mind a little, and you do exactly what they want. And that is what kept me in this business for the past 40 years. End of story.
1: (laughs) It's interesting that you knew that they couldn't use your mind.
2: They were right in front of me, these four lights, I mean, 50 yards from me, still in this monotonous red-green flashing. And then suddenly, like a half a second passed, and they weren't and then they were behind me. I don't know how they went from point A to B without my noticing that, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it.
1: Yeah, it's a fascinating story. Is that how you got involved with MUFON?
2: I was already a MUFON member, but I was really green. I'd only been in it five or six months. There was so much I know now that I didn't know then, but yeah, that's what really cemented it for me. Now I understand what people in close encounters go through. I've got to stay in this business wherever it leads. Right. I knew I was dealing with something far superior in intelligence to my
1: own. That's, oh, that's so interesting. So what do you think? I mean, I know we're tangible a little bit, and we'll get into the book in just a second, but what do you think of the, the Tic Tacs that we we're seeing now? Because as you were describing it, you're reminding me of the Phoenix Lights, but you're also reminding me of, like, the Tic Tacs Navy just said, yeah, they're UFOs.
2: What I know of the Tic Tac, and I haven't done any special research on that particular shape, but I assume that that means like a Tic Tac chewing mint, which is basically an elongated oval. Well, frankly, that's the same thing that was seen in the Old Testament. The pillar by day and fire at night. That was in a tic-tac shape, a rounded cylinder. So, I you know, maybe they've been around all that time. I don't know. And I don't pretend to know everything about the subject. I know what I've experienced. And for five years in the 90s, I studied four MUFONs, studied only alleged abduction cases. And there were some stories that you could tell that people were pouring out their hearts. This was not made up stuff. And it was some stories that would just raise the hair on the nape of your neck. We should probably talk about the book.
1: Yes, yes, definitely.
2: Before there was a CIA, there was an OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. Franklin Roosevelt, during the early months of, of World War II, he became fascinated by spies that the French and the British had out in the field and what the information they were collecting. And he wanted some capacity like that himself. So he approached a, an old World War I uh, commanding general named Wild Bill Donovan, I love that name, <laughs> who was a much decorated general during World War One, And at this point, he was just a New York attorney who was coaxed back into, well, this business, He set up the Office of Strategic Services, OSS, and I'll make more mentions of that. What their charge was, was to learn as much as they could about Nazi and Japanese military capabilities, while at the same time skewing and obscuring our own so that the Nazis got bad information on us while we were getting good stuff on them. It was not... Curiously, the OSS was not funded by the Congress. The Congress funded the President directly with a major emergency fund. And Donovan, by just his signature, nothing else was able to draw funds out of that for the operations of the OSS. During this period of time from 1942 to 45, especially in the latter part of the war, It was just a curiosity, a coincidence to the rest of the OSS functioning. Fighter pilots and bomber pilots, and as it turned out, we learned later, the Axis Powers pilots were seeing the same thing. They would have individual balls of light or plasma come out of the distance and hover near their wingtips they did not regard this as some kind of enemy it was just an oddity a curiosity to talk over beers between combat missions and so those in retrospect they were called then foo fighters foo fighters and were just seen as a an oddity well we skipped from there to 1947 and by now, it was with the National Security Act, Congress created both the CIA and the National Security Council. And while Bill Donovan was the first director of the CIA. Now, within that, the office, don't think of this as a little 12-person office. It was a sprawling <laughs> bureaucracy under itself. Was the Office of Scientific Intelligence. And they didn't have any laboratory or anything to do scientific work, but they had ears to the ground throughout Europe and North Africa. And they created something called Information from Foreign Documents or Radio Broadcasts, DRB <laughs> And these operatives throughout two continents I say operatives you might say spook or spy that's what they were they would fill out this form the IFDRB, telling most of what they were turning in was highly classified military related stuff but they would also throw in by the way last week a dozen people in this town saw something odd close at hand (laughs) and so those became the, the source of what later we would get through the National Security Agency. Now, importantly, a whole bunch of this never made it to a, what in 2017, the CIA in January, I think this is a parting shot by President Obama just before his second term was over. He ordered the CIA to release a whole bunch of these files to its website and so they did and they proclaimed that they had just dropped a million pages of UFO documents onto its website for anyone to see well I volunteered to help you know I thought would be a group effort to go through these only to find out no uh, no one else was doing it and I could put a group together myself, but I thought first I'd better take a, a glance at these things to figure out what the heck we're talking about. Well, it wasn't a million pages of anything. It was more like 120,000 pages, which is still a lot, but 98% literally of all of these documents had nothing to do with UFOs. they If you wanted to know all about bulgaria's rail tonnage in 1956 well it was there ufo is not so much but i did finally after five months of doing nothing but sorting and reading came up with 550 different documents that did at least in part talk about unidentified flying objects and that became the source for this book
1: now were um, those other i mean was it just like a keyword search that they did or something? Because how did all these other files end up with?
2: No, there was no keyword search. (laughs) What I think was going on, whether whether the direction was from high up in the management ranks or whether it was simply a file clerk making these decisions, any memo or report, that didn't seem to fit another subject easily, they threw into this quote-unquote UFO pile. Mm, Okay. And so it grew exponentially until they had over 100,000 pages of stuff. But 98% of it was not UFO. So after doing all that sorting, I came up with 550 that were important.
1: Not bad, though. 550 is a pretty good number. I mean, it's not...
2: Yeah, it was a good number to work with. Some were whole documents, and some were just one out of 11 subjects in an otherwise classified military kind of report. But they told quite a story in total. Now, it's also important for readers to know. Everybody's heard about 1947. There was the Kenneth Arnold sighting in the Cascade Mountains in Washington, and just days after that was the crash at at Roswell, New Mexico. But most people don't realize that after a flurry of reports from the public throughout the rest of 47 and into 48, all went quiet. There were just virtually no UFO reports in 49, 50, 51. And then suddenly in 52, there's a whole rash of things. In our country and all over the world. The, uh, oh, the first major one is, again, one of these IFDRB reports. was titled, Flying Saucers Over Belgian-Congo Uranium Mines. Something that was seen by multiple witnesses. Two disks that were had a buzzing sound. Did zigzag motions. Things we've heard about many, many times since in UFO reports. That write-up. Of that IFDRB was sent throughout the Department of Defense like listen up people something important just happened in late April on the same day there were reports from Roseville Michigan a suburb of Detroit and Yuma Arizona on May 1 was a multiple staff report from George Air Force Base in California and days later Another multi-witness report from Keesler Air Force Base in Mississippi. In late May, multiple people saw a rocket-shaped ship going over Barcelona, Spain. In San Antonio, Texas, on May 29, uh, a pilot and a ground crew saw a cylinder hovering over nearby. And in June, there was a, a luminous object which rose up from the ground and a shipmaster and his um, first mate saw it do zigzags and right angle turns and finally fly out of sight. In July, there was a really cool event in East Germany. A father and his adolescent daughter were on his motorcycle when it blew a tire. As he's tending to that, she saw something, some commotion in a nearby woods. They were both interested enough to go over and inspect it and what they found as they came through the woods were two small men in metallic clothing with some kind of lantern at their waist they were doing something outside this odd shaped it was circular but above what would be a saucer shape was a 10 foot high cone in black Well, the daughter said something to her father when they were just 10 yards from this thing. The entities heard it, they raced back into the ship, and it flew off. And and the father and daughter found a depression in the ground where it had rested. That was one of my favorite ones. But that all led up to late July around Washington, D.C., on the evening or night of the 19th and 20th, and again, on July 26, Andrews Air Force Base, which is where Air Force One is parked, as well as Washington National, their radars were picking up multiple anomalous objects, things that shouldn't have been there. And airliners coming into Washington National were picking them up on their radars. And eventually, they were seeing at least bright lights they couldn't make out a shape that were flying all about. And this went on all night, on the 19th and 20th, and again on the 26th. The Air Force, unfortunately, dropped the ball on this. They would normally have been at Andrews Air Force Base, but those runways were being repaved. So that squadron had been sent to Delaware. Well, by the time a couple of jets arrived from Delaware, the just as soon as they got within radar range of D.C., these anomalous lights just boogie, just took off parts unknown. The jets make their way across the city and back, don't see anything, and headed back to Delaware. And as soon as they were out of radar range, back came the unknowns. This went on cat and mouse on both of those nights. And you got to know that that made some waves. That set in motion... Um, series of reports by the CIA Weapons and Equipment Division saying there's something going on here that we don't know what it is, but it, and we don't know if it's dangerous or offers a threat to us, but the CIA director ought to be telling the National Security Council that something strange is going on. The National Security Agency director told the press that all of that stuff on radar and as seen from the ground were just temperature inversions.
1: (laughs) Oh, my God, seriously?
2: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. well, you know, it was the early 50s, and people were more trusting of their officials than today. By the end of that year, and with the Cold War well underway with the Soviets, we needed to know whether these odd lights and objects seen in the sky were of soviet design or something else but they concluded that no the soviets just didn't have that kind of capacity given the extraordinary heights and speeds of these things couldn't be happening by the end of 1952 when they concluded that the public would never be satisfied and would keep sending in their public reports if science were not brought to bear on this so they suggested that there be a panel of eminent scientists put together and they would put together a national estimate on flying saucers in order to restrain public hysteria that was their main concern because they thought if in a real emergency all kinds of low level reports of UFOs could clog the communication system and hide an actual attack by the soviets so they were hidebound to get to the bottom of this thing and that's how a panel that came to be known as the robertson panel came to be in december of 52 they put together a group howard p robertson was a physicist from caltech and he chose several other Folks to um, look at the best evidence, and by at that point, a couple of other astronomers, including one you might have heard of, J. Allen Hynek, who two decades later would found the Center for UFO Studies. But in the early 50s, he was quite the hardcore skeptic as an astronomer. Uh, a couple of other physicists, a radar expert. And they gathered at the, again, Office of Scientific Intelligence, or OSI, headquarters in Langley, Virginia, at the CIA for a total of 12 hours over four days. And they looked at what they thought were the best evidence. Uh, one of those was a film taken by Seriously, a career Navy photographer in Tremonton, Utah, with the best equipment available, and he was an expert in photography. He had what he called in his lens 10 saucer shapes high in the sky. Well, after debating the point, the Robertson panel decided that these were either polyethylene balloons, I don't know why there would be ten or a dozen of those flying together, or par- perhaps seagulls reflecting sunlight. They went through a second film taken by a Montana minor league baseball manager who was tending his field when something came over. He grabbed his little recorder and shot a few minutes of it and naively he agreed to turn over his film to the Air Force. He got it back some months later, but with key footage missing, the footage that showed these at their clearest and closest. So Robertson panel, having seen the selected short subject of, of this film, decided that they were looking at the reflections from two F-94 jets. They looked at a half a dozen other Photos and then some anecdotal accounts and agreed universally that there was nothing to this subject. They made six main conclusions, the Robertson panel. At first, they said there's no threat to national security, not from the Soviet Union or any other country. But second, in a true crisis, the hysterical public could overload communications and hide real hostile acts. The third was that trying to solve most or all of the reports from the public would be a huge waste of time and resources. Instead, as their fourth conclusion, there should be a program to train the public that what they were seeing were not UFOs, they were IFOs, identifiable flying objects, whether that was Venus and Mars or something from the weather or just common old aircraft aircraft. They were IFOs. If they were trained that they were mistaking that stuff, at the same time debunking new reports by the Air Force, that would lower the level, the volume of all of this, and the public would lose interest. The fifth conclusion was, and I'll read this, the national security agencies, I'm reading a direct quote, should take immediate steps to strip the unidentified flying objects of the special status they have been given and the aura of mystery they have unfortunately acquired. And their sixth conclusion was that civilian groups that had popped up by then, the Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, APRO, and NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, should be surveilled the CIA ordered the Air Force to do surveillance on these groups because they were potentially subvert the real information and influence the public
1: wow so it was just as like the whole campaign just to get rid of it like let's just let's just explain this away and move on
2: (laughs) Uh, and move on there you go and and it will never be a problem again (laughs) yeah (laughs) so we move on from there to Bentwaters. Lots of folks on lots of TV documentaries have heard about an, a famous or infamous event on Christmas week of 1980 in Bentwaters, England, at a, a U.S.-operated but British-owned airbase. Yeah. But what isn't known is that years before that, in 1956, there was a whole night of various radars picking up multiple unknowns that should not be there. At one point, 12 of them were on a screen and they all coalesced into one giant blob in the middle of the radar screen and then that disappeared as if all of them tightly grouped had flown straight up and out out of radar range. This went on all night and shook up a lot of people locally. But the key thing to know is this never made it to that 2017 file dump. And there's a good reason for it. This and other cases that I know were highly credible had national security implications. And so they were withheld. They still haven't seen the light of day.
1: Wow, so this dump is pretty much anything that they don't really care about or have been explained. Yeah, didn't care
2: much about. Easily explained away. Um, Oh, and late at that night in 56, when they were scratching their heads at, what the heck are we watching here on our screens? And some airmen were seeing them out on the runways. They sent up. The, uh, what it was called, a Venom fighter jet with a two-man crew to intercept whatever these were. And the pilots had them on their radar and visually bright lights in front of them, and they're closing in. And then in an instant, the lights were behind them. like what I saw in the field they had no idea how it went from point A to point B but it shook them up and they decided they were low on fuel and decided to come in oh
1: my gosh
2: (laughs) that's a a favorite story of mine what do I mean by the ham sandwich
1: yeah I was wondering about that Um, I was reading about that but please tell us
2: there was an innocuous chemist but at a a prestigious Los Alamos National Laboratory who heard about a um, ham radio broadcast that someone had tape recorded that had a curious, unusual signal. And, And this guy, Leon Davidson, decided that this was a secret message from outer space space aliens were communicating with us. Well, what it was was Morse code. I was a kid back then, but I remember hearing ham radio bands and hearing Morse code on them. But he decided this was all alien and he badgered the Central Intelligence (laughs) Agency for the next five years with personal visits and letters and phone calls. He used up hundreds if not thousands of hours of staff time to the point where these people in the Office of Scientific Intelligence to, from one man to the next would say, Get rid of this guy. We want nothing more to do with him. He's wasting our time. That was the why I call it the ham sandwich because of this ham radio broadcast. But also in '56, a retired marine major Donald Kehoe, had taken over as director of NICAP, National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena. And from the get-go, and because he had creds as a retired Marine major, he started shouting cover-up publicly every chance he got that the CIA was covering up real flying saucer reports. And he made a general nuisance of himself. In the end, after several years of both of these two guys shouting their stuff, the CIA decided that Leon Davidson was just a kook, but Donald Kehoe was a menace and had to be handled, and so they put more surveillance on him. Oh, I've also been asked, was there ever any cooperation between the CIA and civilian UFO groups? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There was in sixty five the CIA director in passing asked the OSI director, have you been keeping up on this UFO stuff? What's what's going on with that? OSI then approached Donald Kehoe and the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena and borrowed over a hundred of their reports from the public. So yeah, at one point there really was cooperation.
1: Now, did other government bodies, were they complicit in all of this? I mean, what about the Air Force, the Navy? When they were seeing things, were they yeah. cooperating?
2: Good point. The Air Force did, in the early 50s, set up the Project Blue Book. And everybody's heard about Project Blue Book. Very few people know it was a tiny operation. At most, there were two low-level officers, like a, a captain and a lieutenant, and a sergeant and one secretary. Most of the years it was in operation, from the early 50s until 69, there was just one, a captain, and then a sergeant and a secretary. And they were supposed to track down reports from 100 military bases, from the Pentagon, and from the general public. Yeah, right. Mostly what they did was just collect data for an annual report. They didn't investigate anything firsthand. It was a joke, but it went down in the annals as if that was a serious Air Force effort to resolve the UFO question.
1: Yeah, a lot of it just seemed very explained away, like, oh, this is swamp gas, it's this, it's that. It was just very much like, let's pretend like we're doing something <laughs>
2: <Yes>. <laughs>
1: to put people at yes. ease. It, it didn't really go very far. It's not what the TV show looks like. I watched that show, and I was like, okay, this is giving people the wrong idea, definitely.
2: Now, in 1962, the Air Force, still speaking of them, suddenly, without any fanfare, brought out a new regulation for all of its air base commanders that from now on, from 1962 on, they could not talk to the press or the public about UFOs unless it was really an IFO. They could talk about stuff that turned out to be a temperature inversions or Venus or a regular conventional aircraft. But if it was something that stumped them, no, the airbase commanders were forbidden from saying anything. And as to the pilots and the air traffic controllers, they were to zip it up. They couldn't even talk to each other without permission and only on a need-to-know basis. This put a real damper on military reports from then on. Uh, You didn't get anything from pilots. Just I can't talk about that. Along the way, there was a a person who i in fact, I com- finished one of the chapters of my book saying, "Rest in peace, Dr. McDonald, You did some good." A fellow named James McDonald, who was an an atmospheric physicist at the University of Arizona, put out started speaking publicly. First, it was to faculty and staff at U of A and then more public pronouncements in the months and a couple of years to follow he said that he had reluctantly reached the an ET conclusion about the whole problem as the least unacceptable hypothesis that he could think of he didn't like it but it was the less unacceptable than others he said he concluded from reading a bunch of reports from the public that whatever was going on, that it seemed to be peaceful reconnaissance. He said that the 53 Robertson panel report had orchestrated an Air Force debunking effort, and he kept saying that over and over, and you know that had to rankle. And that Project Blue Book's claim of explaining 95% of all the reports from the public with hogwash, that it was closer to 50% at best. And he said this Blue Book was a scientific scandal. Well, this didn't get him many friends within the intelligence community.
1: I was going to say, I'm sure he was on um, the bad list.
2: After he had spoken out any number of times and been featured in newspapers and magazine articles, he finally heard it from his superiors at Arizona that he should back away while he was being ridiculed within the intelligence community. And finally, his wife left him. He became very depressed and he took his own life.
1: Oh, no. But he
2: went to his grave still believing this is the least unacceptable hypothesis that they're truly from other worlds. Now, there was a... By 66... The Air Force had had quite enough. They were being ridiculed in the in the news media and by the public as not having any answers, and so they were ready to punt. And they designed a contract with the University of Colorado to do a another formal study of everything that had happened to that point. They needed a fair-minded group of scientists, and they suggested that a fellow named Edward U. Condon from University of Colorado head up this project that he would gather again a handful of other scientists and go through the information to that point but even before they got underway a doctor
1: with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom Sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
1: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
2: Robert Lowe, also from Colorado, talked to the university officials because they were going to be using their facilities. And he had a, an interesting statement here that I would read. Our study would be conducted almost exclusively by non-believers who would add an impressive body of evidence that there is no reality to the observations. The trick, the trick would be, I think, to describe it so that to the public, it would appear a totally objective study but to the scientific community, it could present the image of a group of non-believers trying their best to be objective, but having an almost zero expectation of finding a saucer. Wow. Now, on top of that, they were underway, and they were meeting, and, and you can see what attitude they were bringing to it, but Edward Condon himself, the chair of this Condon committee, Declared to the press, I won't believe in an outer space saucer until I see one, touch one, haul it into a lab, and get some incompetent people to go over it with me. It is my indication or inclination right now to recommend that the government get out of this business. My attitude right now is that there is nothing to it, but I'm not supposed to reach a conclusion for another year. So there you have the wisdom and objectivity of the people running that project.
1: Yeah, basically they went in going how do we debunk
0: this?
2: (laughs) Yeah, how do we debunk it? And in the end they did. They said there was nothing to it that they were concerned by impacts like on the stock markets and stuff if anybody an unofficial framework were to say that there really was something substantial. And so they were going to go take any measures they had to to debunk the entire subject and with that they turned in their report in mid 68 and by the late latter months of 69 the air force having been given that permission disbanded project blue book never to be formed again and that was the last that the air force or the cia was officially in this business but those reports from overseas kept coming in for another few decades debunking or not guys of spies out there would say you know this mother and four daughters and down the block a whole family saw this saucer hovering low over the sky and it stayed there motionless for 10 minutes before it flew away what are you supposed to do with something like that I mean, there was no proof. All of these were anecdotal accounts, but there were thousands of them. And I would argue that in com- in composite, they make a hell of an argument.
1: So why do you think there was such a, this this idea that it doesn't exist? Why were they trying to just like close the book on this?
2: It had to be. There could be no other conclusion by the government, because if they admitted that there was something to the UFO subject, then that would put the damper on our being, the be-all, end-all in the universe. Mm. It would say there is something greater than humankind out there, and they really could not afford to do that.
1: Do you think times have changed as far as that ideology?
2: I do. It was a long time coming. I've been in MUFON for decades now, and I can tell you that most of our years in this business, we were struggling to gain respect from the government, from the major media. But in the past 10 years, um, maybe because there have been so many televised documentaries plus movies on occasion, over time, very gradually, MUFON has not drawn many more smirks. Um, it's, a, oh, yeah, tell me more. Hmm. So, yes, now I think um, we've got a long way to go, but we are seen as much more credible than they, we were, say, 20 years ago.
1: You know there's, there's, there's this TikTok tac thing going on, and there is some disclosure happening right now. What do you think would happen if people realized there was some sort of E.T. or alien presence? Like, How would that affect us?
2: A whole lot of things would happen, but I would start from one end and say there was a fellow who was not involved in this business, but he was a workmate who, after listening to a couple of stories I had to convey, said, You know, it's just one more thing to put up with. (laughs) So, obviously, he wasn't going to panic. No. (laughs) (laughs) But, But a bunch of things would happen, and I think it would begin with our stock markets and currencies. They would take a tumble. Stock market investors hate the unknown, and there is nothing more unknown than unidentified flying objects. So, people would get out of long-term investments lots of fewer folks would buy houses or annuities anything long-term even life insurance stuff that's not going to pay off for decades if you don't know whether we're going to still be upright and stable a year from now you're probably not going to invest in any of those things that would even carry through to sending your child to a a college that's private and pricey, like fifty sixty thousand a year, if that child is not going to have a forty year career, why would you invest so much? So small colleges would find themselves in trouble. There would be some products that uh, did well. I think beef jerky would fly off the shelves and <laughs> There would be a great increase in sales of travel trailers, campers, tents. People would start living more day to day. Now, I've been asked many times, what's the effect on religions? And, you know, Barry Downing and others have written whole books on this. There would be certain religions that would be very accepting. Hinduism, Buddhism to the extent that that is a religion. Those are, Hinduism is polytheistic and Buddhism is is non-theistic. So I don't think either of those, adherents to those, would have any problem with being told that there were intelligent beings on other planets. But within Christianity, and especially, say, Southern Baptists down here where I live in Georgia, if they are accepting at all, it's on the notion that... Alien beings are demons from the Old Testament and must be put away. There would be a point of argument by those fundamentalist Christians that God sent his, quote, only begotten son to earth. Well, if he was the only one, who are these guys that look so different from humans? So there, I don't see how there could be any acceptance there. Judaism and Islam are both monotheistic, but again, I don't think that they would have a great deal of trouble accepting. There would be some cultural, beyond religion, there would be some cultural problems. Charities that don't pay out with any regularity in whatever their cause is, they would suffer, again, long-term stuff would not fly. Uh, Sports teams, something like an NFL team, they would go ahead and play their games, but the thought of a new media contract or building a new stadium, that's where there would be problems. Because again, long-term versus living day by day. Police agencies, I think, initially in the short run would be overwhelmed by charges of shoplifting and looting and burglary as people are stealing stuff off the shelves not knowing how many days we have left all of this because somebody in officialdom said yeah they're real and they're here congress and all state legislatures i think would become rather moot why they wouldn't have anything to offer Uh, courts would continue but again back to my friend and workmate just something else to put up with. So I think in the long term everything would settle out, but the shock and dismay of an official government pronouncement that UFOs were real would really shake our society to its roots.
1: Yeah, I see that. I um, you're not the first person to talk about the demon thing, the, the demon alien connection. Yeah. That surprises me. It, it does. When I heard that, I was like, what? It is what yeah. it is. Like, I'm I'm more online with your friend. <laughs> oh, something else to deal with. How do we integrate this? <laughs> how do we integrate this into society? You know what I mean? It, it's chill for me. Yeah. But I could see how there's a huge part of the world that would be like, what? <laughs> you know, it, it kind of, yeah, exactly. It just, it throws the paradigm off. This is an amazing book. I've been reading it little by little just because there's so much information in it, and it's, it's in chronological yeah. order.
2: Yeah. I did not write this as a going into battle kind of thing. I wasn't writing this as a defender of MUFON or UFO proponent. I wrote it as I would re- write a report, an essay, uh, a memorandum in back in my civil service days. As they said on Jack Webb said on his TV programs, just the facts, man. I have very little editorial commentary, except when the government got absurd in some of its denials. But, (laughs) no, I just said the facts are stupendous. You don't have to exaggerate anything.
1: No, you don't, and it's, it's a very cool book because, like I said, you can just read it in spurts. Like I've been reading it with my breakfast and stuff like that, and just little tidbits here and there. And I'm like, wow, this is—it's just—it's an amazing part of history that we don't hear about, or if you don't, we
2: don't—we,
1: you know, it's one and of those I things.
2: I did write it so that you could pick it up um, while sitting on the john, frankly. <laughs> minute
1: read. Here <laughs> 10 minute read. Yeah, exactly. That's what it's and like. Yeah, it's a it's a great book, and anybody who is interested in UFOs or the government or just a part of history that again we don't really highlight, this is an amazing book, and I was so excited to read it, and I it's one of these books that I'm going to keep for reference, you know, and be like, okay, what was going on, and but, you know, in this area, and yeah, gonna... and
2: for folks who really are, for folks who are already in the business, you know, have been involved in UFO investigations or the intend to be i have almost 50 pages of end notes at the back of the book plus an index of all the key words and phrases i wanted this to be a source book for future ufo researchers to access just as i did with some of the so-called ufo encyclopedia so that was a big part of my purpose was to to put something out there that won't be just a fly-by-night thing but will hang around for years and be used by others.
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. I mean, when I heard about this dump, I was like, I'm not going through a million pages. I did look through it, and I was like, this is this is exhausting. This is overwhelming. So when I heard that you did this, I was like, wow, somebody actually went through it. That's amazing.
2: <laughs> because I, I came to understand more and more that the importance the most important cases to the government, those with national security implications, were not part of this file dump. That's why I decided that I had to tell the public what the rest of the story was. And so I used all of these other historical UFO-related books and encyclopedias to put together a section for at the end of each chapter that I called while you were away from your desk. That used to be a buck slip that secretaries would give to their bosses when they came back from a meeting or lunch or something. While you were away from your desk, such and such happened or so and so called. So I put all of these cases that should have been looked at by the CIA but weren't into that section for each chapter for each year. Most of the chapters consist of just one year. And it's all in chronological order. It doesn't bounce all over the place. So it's fairly easy to follow.
1: Yeah, those are my favorite parts, actually. I was going to actually mention that the while you're away from your desk is the most fascinating parts for me because it <laughs> it tells like a cohesive story then because you're like, oh, all these other things happened around the same time. That's...
2: At the same time.
1: Yeah, it gives you that, yeah, that was, big picture.
2: By calling it while you were away from your desk, that was my snarky little comment at the cia i know you're withholding some of this stuff
0: <laughs> so this is
2: what you would have said had you been telling the whole story
1: if somebody wants to buy this book where did we find you where do we find the book
2: i know it's it's gone out to major bookstores but i can't tell you which ones but it is certainly on amazon just my name dan wright and the name of the book is the cia ufo papers You can easily find it that way.
1: Thank you for listening to the Envious Aliens podcast. The show notes for this episode are located at podcast.enviousaliens.com. If you like
0: the podcast, share it on social media. And as always, see you on the flip side. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?